What is Amazing Love? Well, first and foremost, it's a gathering of people who are committed to reach the lost with the love of Christ. I love a quote by R.C. Sproul that says, Reaching out, or evangelism, is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And at Amazing Love, that's just what we're doing. We're a community telling others, we found bread. And not just any bread, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who alone is able to satisfy a hungry heart. And what did Jesus do? He leaves 99 sheep to find the one who is lost. Taking our cue from Jesus, we do so many things to reach the lost, whether it's an outreach event like our helicopter drop, renting space to Lincoln Way Strings or schools, service projects like Dirty Ministry, or inviting our friends to come to church with us. And what are we hoping they find? We hope they find community, a gathering of people that you can belong to even before you believe. Come as you are, but make no mistake, as you get to know Jesus, you won't stay that way. We hope they find peace. Everything we do, we're going to emphasize the victory that Jesus won for us. We are forgiven. We are loved. Heaven is our home. We're going to find purpose. Something better than a golf game or doing another load of laundry or spending a few more hours at work. What we are doing is storing up eternal treasure. It's something that will matter now and for all eternity. And when we work together, more is done. More people are reached and more are served in a better way. That's exactly what we've seen in the past couple of years. We've done more and God has blessed us with more. We've offered more events, more group offerings, more planning, more excellence, more inviting, all so that more people found Jesus. But I don't know about you, I'm not done yet. We're not done yet. There's a next level still to reach and a greater impact to be had. So now's our time to dream, to envision, to imagine yourself in the 10,000th year of heaven looking back at life and thinking about what you could have done, what you wanted to do. Where will that lead us? That eternal perspective will lead us to maximize these mere moments, or at least want to to reach so hard so that hungry are fed, so that lost are found, and that we all grow close to the one who is only, the only one built to satisfy our hungry hearts. May God bless us to reach toward that next level. Church family, would you pray with me? Let's ask God to bless the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, uh, what this world needs is less of me and more of you. And in these moments, we just humble our hearts and we get to hear your voice. And Lord, accomplish the purpose for which you send your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start with a question. And that is, what is the key to unlock generosity? The reason I ask this is because this series has been building to a crescendo. And as I announced, uh, next Sunday is our big commitment. And as we think of next level, as we think about what God might do through us, how do we get there? How can our hearts move for the kingdom, for the things of God? That's what I want to talk about with you in our time together. And a great example of generosity, uh, he's been called the modern-day uh, philanthropist. 
father of philanthropy, sorry, a lot of words there, um, is Andrew Carnegie. Now, I just knew Carnegie from Carnegie Hall. Do you know how to make it to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. And, and if you're a musician, maybe you heard that, or a dancer, uh, that's how you make it. You make sure to practice a lot. But beyond um, that, his, his hall named after him, as you see, he's one of the richest men who ever lived. So Carnegie uh, had millions, but they did an equivalent of what that would mean in today's money, and it would equate to $309 billion compared to a Bill Gates, a Sam Walton, a Warren Buffett, Carlos Slim. And we might wonder, well, how did he get his money? Well, he started working for railroads. I don't know if anyone works for a railroad around here. Chicago's got a lot of them. Um, and, and he then uh, started the Carnegie Steel Corporation. Uh, that, that's what he was known for during his livelihood. Uh, at its height, he was able to sell to a guy you might have heard of named uh, J.P. Morgan. And he sold that company, let me get it right, for $480 million. $480 million. This is back in the late 1800s. But this is a man who had a goal for his money. He said this about money. He said that the man who dies rich dies disgraced. And so his goal was to give it away. And he did a pretty good job. Just a little of what he gave to. He funded over 2,500 libraries in the United States alone and over 3,000 throughout the world. He started public universities. Um, for you church people, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, uh, who would say, I love the organ. Give me more organ. And who would say, I don't love the organ. Give me less organ. Well, Carnegie was pro-organ. He bought over 7,500 organs for Christian churches. So, and it's not known if he was an outspoken Christian or not, but that's what he did. And, and when we consider what was behind all of this, there's some speculation. Uh, some speculate the reason he invested in libraries is because he didn't have opportunity for education, and he wanted the common person to have opportunity for knowledge so that they could get ahead. Also why he did universities. I'm not, again, sure why he did organs. But his perspective, this is a man who had this to say about what was driving him, what was behind it. Another quote that he had is this, to try to make the world in some way better than you found it is to have a noble motive in life. And maybe there's some who would agree with that. You look at the end of your life and you look at your family, you look at the people who knew you and you're like, I, I want to leave a legacy. I want to make sure they're better off because I was in this world. Now, as Christians, um, and by the way, welcome if you're new to Christianity or new today. Uh, we're hoping that you see the goodness of God. We're hoping you see why we call his love amazing. But, but Christians, we are looking not just for earthly impact, but eternal impact, right? We want to store up eternal treasure, and that's how we leave a legacy. That's what this next level impact is all about. It's not about some earthly impact. It's going to go hopefully far beyond that. And Christians, they have another motivation, not just to make the world better, um, but, but maybe you've had this experience where you've helped someone through money, and, and you had this sense that God gave you money, but it wasn't really for you. You were just a conduit. And so you helped a family member in need, or you helped your coworker, or you helped a cause. And then you learn this principle that Christians toss around because it's in the Bible, that it's better to than to... 
And maybe that's not just lip service. It's not like, well, I'm putting on my halo and I'm, you know, being a holier than thou. Of course, it's better to give than to receive. But no, no, maybe like truthfully you felt that. Wow, I'm so thankful that I could be a part of that. So thankful that God used me to meet that need. So we find two keys to generosity. Let's make the world better. Let's make eternity better. Let's live in a way that says it's better to give than to receive. But the true key, the one that I want you to really dwell in this morning, comes from the story of Mary Magdalene. Now, some of you know this story. I want to set its context. So in John 11, Mary Magdalene's brother Lazarus dies. And they are distraught. That's an understatement. But Jesus comes around and Jesus says, don't weep. No, no, no. He's going to live again. I am the resurrection and the life. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And a guy who's been dead for four days climbs out of the tomb like, hello. In John 12, it says that they're all sitting together for supper. So, so they're reclining at a table. And Mary, who's now got her brother back and has just seen the glory of God through Jesus Christ, comes with this expensive gift. It's pure nard. I don't know what that means. What it was the equivalent of was a perfume worth a year's wages. Now, just consider a perfume like that. Let's just think of a year's wage. So on the low scale, maybe we're talking 50000 60000 Can you imagine a perfume valued at $60,000? And Mary, she goes, she breaks open the jar, pours it on the feet, and there is shock and awe. There are business people who are like, that's a waste. This could have been sold. We could have fed the poor. Oh my goodness, this is a waste in the name of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say it's a waste. Jesus has a completely different attitude about an extravagant gift. Jesus says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you. Can I tangent teach? I am for other good causes. Feed the poor. Help the sick. Look out for the family. But if you think that a broken world will ever be fixed from another earthly organization, your goal is wrong. There's a guy named Bono. He has this charity, and the mission statement is to make poverty history. Jesus just said, that's not possible. The poor you will always have. And so he raises the level of our hearts. He says dogs are something, the kingdom's something else. The poor people, they're something, the kingdom, oh my goodness, that extends further. It's good to have a heart and compassion, but when it comes to love for Jesus, we need to know as worshipers that is number one. And so Jesus honors this gift that others call a waste. It's extravagant in the name of Jesus. Why are you wasting in the name of Jesus? And Jesus, <laughs> there is no waste when it was done out of love for me. And so what was Mary working with? What do you think was, was driving her in that moment? Here's our first villain. Our first villain is that the key to generosity, I believe, is love for Jesus that considers him worthy. David the king sat after building a palace 
And Jesus, God, needed nothing from him. Needed nothing. He just gave him a palace. And yet David wasn't done. David dreamed and said, but what does God have? Because I love him. And the whole world needs to know he is worthy. The whole world needs to know he deserves awe and praise and majesty. And he built a wonder of the world. Actually, his son did. And so what is the key to generosity? It is love. I look at my Savior and I see what he's done. I say, like, what do you want? Anything. I just want you and I have you so I have all that I need. Let me respond in love. And so today we get to unlock the key to generosity and just dwell on that concept a little bit. Um, so I remember when this all made sense to me. My uh, story is a little bit different than Pastor Jeff's story. I loved his story last week, and thank you for sharing that, Pastor Jeff. Um, really good to learn. So mine it was I did have Christian parents, and I saw their example of giving. Um, but then it didn't really come and turn to me until I was at seminary. And I think that's where we correlate a little bit. Um, but I was in this class where at seminary it's called exegesis, and you go word for word from the original, and you really just pause at every word. You pull it apart, and you look at it. And we were in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8 and chapter 9, and I remember pausing after that study and thinking, Eureka, like holy cow. Like if everyone understood and got what this was saying, Christians would want to give all the time. The church would have so much money that it wouldn't know what to do with it. Like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, if you want to take something home with you and just study this week and dwell in this week, like God, move my heart to your heart. Break my heart for what breaks yours. I would say dwell in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Holy cow, can it move you. And that's what we're going to dwell in. We're going to see the amazing sense that we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It will extend into 9, but we'll just do a few verses today. Why don't you pause today, sit, take in these verses as we discuss them, as we unpack 2 Corinthians 8 here today. So it says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. I mean, I could pause there. It is the grace of God that propels giving. When you look back at your life and God propelled you to give, do you know what he labels that? Grace. Grace, not guilt. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were able to first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work. 
so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And that's so important when it comes to generosity. You know, no one but God actually knows the level of your generosity. Absolutely no one, because only he knows what he has given. Only he knows the grace of God in your life. Um, All right, so as we've unpacked it, can you uh, participate a little bit? Can you say out loud, he is worthy? Are you ready? He is worthy. That's what we want to talk about. All right, so let's let's be real about uh, pleas for money. Have you ever had someone plea for money from you? Who has ever had a timeshare presentation you sat through to, yeah, yeah, I've been there, friends. And you think of it, like they pull out every trick in the book, right? They, they say you can leave at a certain time. No, no, no. They say two hours, it's four. And like the doors are locked and no food is offered, right? Um, and then they say like, oh, it's going to be the deal of your lifetime. It's going to be a blessing to your family. It's going to be a blessing to the next generation. If you've inherited a timeshare, has it been a blessing to the next generation? You can't even get rid of them. Like, these live on past death. It's crazy, right? And, and, and so we, we build up defense mechanisms, don't we, for, for pleas for money, don't we? We, we have those defenses. Uh, it, it's part of just working in the world. I remember pleas for money uh, when it came to childhood eating. Um, I was always supposed to eat everything, including my pea soup. You know why? Maybe you heard it too. They're starving children in Africa. I'm like, Mom, they can have my pea soup. I don't, you know, what am I supposed to do about that one? I I mean, yes, I don't want them to starve, but I also don't want to eat the pea soup, right? So there's pleas. Um, Maybe a plea has been given to you, you know, about um, a worthy cause, right? And even worthy causes, you're like, okay, let me think about this. Let me dwell on it. And because we are so accustomed to these pleas for money, it makes sense that we have a defense, right? It makes sense, you know, Pastor Jeff talked about rationale, why not to give. Why we all come in with an attitude, hey, Pastor, I'm coming to the money thing, but don't worry, I've already decided, right? That makes sense. What you need to see in Scripture, though, is a plea dichotomy. So what's so interesting about this lesson is that Paul actually is not pleading for their money, as much as them pleading to be a part of it. This is mind-blowing. What did it say? Here's, here's a passage. So uh, pass the picture into the passage. Here goes. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing the, in this service to the Lord's people. So again, they're saying, there's an opportunity to give? Please? Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. And it blows our mind. It's unexpected. We, we say, well, what, what were they dealing with? And one of the things I think they were working with is they knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to camp out there a little bit. Do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? So the gospel literally means the good news of Jesus Christ. It is all about his perfect life, his innocent death, and his glorious resurrection. And by the way, when it comes to that gospel, that is the power of salvation. God uses very simple means to change hearts, lives, and eternities. And it's the good news of Jesus every time. The power of salvation for all who believe. And Paul shared this gospel beautifully. Did you hear it in the lesson? 
this beautiful picture of the gospel? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What a beautiful statement of rags to riches in reverse. In fact, uh, some theologians put up a great acronym over what the grace of God is. And maybe you've heard this if you've been in Christian circles. The grace of God, what is it? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And so we need to just unpack that a little bit. We need to pause and remember, in what ways did Jesus, your Savior, become poor? Think about that. Dwell that a little bit. So at Christmas... um, we, we look at the nativity scene. And I write about it in the book. It's not about me. Maybe some of you have gotten to chapter 2. Anyone read chapter 2? So you know what I'm talking about. Chapter 2, remember there. And I try to unpack the nativity story to see it for what it is. See, we have these sweet-looking nativity sets, right? And the snow is felt and it's pure. And, and the, the goats look like they're all put together and clean. And, and everything is put together But the reality of what Jesus is born into, he was born in a barn. Now just think about that. Have you ever seen on Airbnb a barn you wanted to stay in? Oh, sweet barn Airbnb. Can I stay with cattle? That'd be awesome. What about this? What if a hospital unit looked like a barn? Can you imagine a young mother? Oh, yeah. Let's give birth by the hay. And are there animals? And, and they do it. That'd be awesome. Give me, give me some more of that. And could it smell bad, please? That, that'd be amazing. Like, I'm not a barn connoisseur or a barn expert, but think of, like, a barn, right? I've never been in a barn that smelled good. I've never been in a clean barn. I've never looked at an animal feeding trough or even where my cat eats its cat food and said, I'd like to dwell there. But this is what Jesus came into. Jesus, in a material way, was the king of kings, owned everything. All gold, all riches he created. Everything was from him and for him, and yet he chooses a barn. Not only that, he lives in a peasant's household. He didn't choose to be part of a political household. He chose peasants. Not only that, but he grew up and he didn't own a home. The only garment worth anything was this garment that he wore, taken off before the cross, and they cast lots for it. The only thing of value Jesus had. But it's bigger than that, isn't it? What Jesus did to become poor, isn't it? It's so far beyond material. So the king of kings gives up his power. He he sets it aside. His miracles were not about creating status or authority or comfortability for himself. His miracles were to help people and to show them what the kingdom was going to be like. And it culminates where he's on the cross. And he's setting aside his power so much that he allows, he's not forced, he allows the nails to pierce his hands and his feet. And he allows them to mock him. Oof, this one cuts me. You remember the mockers? What'd they say? He saved others. Can't save himself. 
that's not my king. He just had a different plan, didn't he? See, he was becoming poor. He was giving everything so that we could be rich. So how are you rich? Do you know you're rich? How are you rich? You have a love that can never fail. When other people hurt you, leave you, abuse you, misuse you, you have a love that will never fail. A love that doesn't know how to fail. A love that always gets it right and never speaks an ill word. A love that will provide for you and guide you. A love that will give you everything you need until you meet the source of that love face to face. You have forgiveness. Broken people who don't want to get it wrong, but get it wrong all the stinking time, are forgiven through the cross of Jesus. And come to that cross and get mercies new every morning to wash every sin away so that there's not a day you live where you have to live in shame and guilt because the cross of Jesus Christ covers it. You have a future. Something beyond what Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett could comprehend. A home so far beyond in glory and splendor that words can't even describe. All we have is figurative language and streets of gold to try to get our minds around the wonder that is in store. And right now, you have purpose. See, the faith journey is not meandering in a meanless way. No, we know why we are here. It is to give God glory in all that we say, think, and do. It is to lift high the only name that can save. Friends, you are filthy, stinking, rich because of the love of Jesus. And so the Macedonian Christians who had heard the gospel, they're like, holy cow, I just won the lottery. Oh my goodness, is there anything better than this? Like, what can I do? Like, is there any way that I can respond? I know salvation is free. I know it's all done by Jesus, but is there anything? Oh, there's an offering? Paul, hey, can we be part of it? Because we just want to say, Jesus, I love you. You're the only thing that matters. What do you want, Jesus? I know what you did. Do you feel it? Do you see it? Do you get the heart yet? See, see, giving ultimately isn't about a needs base. Giving ultimately is how do I ascribe worthy to the only one worth it? How do I tell the world he's amazing and beyond? He'll knock your socks off every time if you truly see him. Let me be a part of that. In a world that focuses on less than things, what is a library, university, what's an organ? Compared to knowing the love of Jesus Christ. And so the key to generosity, what we saw is the gospel. It's dwelling in it. It's remembering. Holy cow, God made me rich. Rich indeed. Holy cow. And so then the Macedonians, they wanted to give. And give they did. So, so let's look at practically what they did. The first thing we're going to talk about is they stretched themselves. And... Uh, I don't know if you ever had a parent or, or someone that loved you that stretched themselves to show you the finer things. 
And so um, I, one of the biggest graces of God in my life is my Christian parents. And um, they weren't perfect, but they were awesome. And often they stretched themselves financially to show me love. I remember at seminary, uh, we were the first class that had to have laptops. And back in 2004, laptops still cost $2,000. There was no cheaper laptop than $2,000 in 2004. And I had no idea, like, how am I going to pay for this? And well, then my parents. And then I got married, and I have a picture of what they gave me. It's a beauty. Are you ready for this one? A Daewoo Laganza. Yeah. I know you're, that's a popular car, isn't it? It's a South Korean car. They don't even, like, import them from South Korea anymore. Uh, a Korean car that um, I remember my dad first driving up, and I'm like, that's too rich for us. But, uh, and, and then I inherited it later when I got married, and uh, it was awesome. I had a ball in my Daewoo Laganza, fit for a king. I remember in the back of this Daewoo Laganza, and uh, we had an infant. And so uh, I love how technology has improved. Because when I grew up, uh, the way to keep infants happy is no seatbelts in the back of a station wagon playing cards. You can't do that anymore. So uh, in, in our infancy stage, um, we had these videos um, that you'd strap to the back. And I remember sitting by Bella, and I was in the next seat, and Kat was driving. And I'm like, holy cow, we're rich. I'm watching a movie, and she's driving, and... I'm having a ball. It's awesome. And my parents enabled this. But I knew it. I knew that they stretched. I knew it did not come easily for them, but they wanted to show me love. Have you done it? You look at your kids and you're like, oh, I was never able to get this, but I want you to have it. Have you done it? That's a parent's love, isn't it? And so when we consider the best love, the love that Jesus has for us and we have for Jesus, isn't it appropriate then that we would stretch? Isn't it appropriate that we would do the same thing that we do for our kids and our spouse that we would do for God? How is that somehow inappropriate? No, that's always been what love is. Love stretches to say, you're worth it. You're worth sacrifice. You're worth it when it doesn't feel good. Yes, I love to be a cheerful giver, but sometimes that cheerfulness turns to sacrifice, and there's a glorious mixture there, isn't there? And so we stretch, and I talked about that commitment card. It's over and above. What does that mean? Over and above says, I'm already giving. I'm going to stretch to see if I can give some more. Whew. That's a stretch, isn't it? Think of just the word stretch. When I try to touch my toes, which I can't and probably never will, I feel tension. Like it's saying, don't go any further. But I'm like, no, I got to go further. That's what it is. But if you want to reach next level generosity, the next level generosity is formed through stretching. So that's our next fill-in. It's formed through stretching. Awesome. They teach us even more, the Macedonian Christians. Because, well, to get the, the verse about stretching, let's go back to the verse. I'm sorry, Glenda, you're doing a great job. They were in the midst of a severe trial. Their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So talk about a stretch. Some commentators said that even though they were poor, they gave as if they were rich. Like, it, it was like, how are you guys poor based on, on what's going on? Like, I, I don't even see it, Right? Where is this even coming from? I don't, I don't expect that. 
And this is so apropos for our culture where, do you remember when eggs were $5, right? I'm glad they're not $5. But not everything's come down. And so we're, we're talking about money in the midst of maybe extreme poverty, and we're like, what in the world? And then God says, stretch. I get it. It's a stretch. But, but there's more. And to talk about this, I want to talk about how you stay healthy as an individual. And often, uh, uh, Jeff and I talk about three legs of a stool because we're in this network called Cross Train. And to stay healthy as an individual, you have to focus on your physical your spiritual, and your emotional strength. And think of how they work in tandem. Think of if you're only spiritual and emotional, but you don't have physical strength. Like you can't sleep through the night, you don't eat properly, you don't exercise properly. If that's going on, spiritually speaking, can you wake up and say, hey, the joy of the Lord is my strength? Probably not. You need the physical, don't you? Think of if you're only like worldly sense, you're, you're physically strong and you're emotionally strong, but you're not spiritually strong. So you, again, physically strong, you're thinking about your thoughts and feelings, but you never read the Bible. That's the spiritual strength. And then you try to act like a Christian under spiritual warfare, you're going to get beat up. You don't have the ammunition. So, so it can't just be about physical and emotional. Or if you take just spiritual and physical and then not emotional, I don't know how to deal with my feelings. I don't know how to process my thoughts. That's not helpful either. You take any one of the legs of the stool away and you don't have a stool. It's broken. Three areas you need to focus on. I bring that up because just as there are three legs of a stool for health, do you know that there are three legs of a stool for stewardship? In fact, they all start with the word T and some of you know them. The three T's of stewardship are time, talent, treasure. What's so interesting, in a health sense, we understand how three stools all work together, but in a stewardship sense, we like to pick. You ever been there? God, I just want to pick what I do. I think in this season of my life, it's going to be about talent. I'm just going to offer you talent, God. That's what I got. In another season, I have money, so I'm going to do the treasure, God. Not worry about the time and the talent, but the treasure I got. What would Scripture recommend that we steward? You're getting where I'm going, aren't you? Let me get a passage up here. Yeah, that one. But since you excel in, what's that word? Everything. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in the grace of giving. See, someday we're going to meet Jesus. And he's going to have an accounting for how we lived our lives. And do you think he's only going to look at one of those areas? But Jesus, I gave you time. Isn't the king worthy of everything? And so Matthew Henry, a commentator, I loved what he put. Matthew Henry, he said, they solemnly, jointly, and unanimously made a fresh surrender of themselves and all they had unto the Lord. I love that. A fresh surrender. Why are we doing a stewardship series? Because some of you have surrendered, but what you need is a fresh surrender. Some of you have thought about this, but what you need to do is have a fresh way of looking at this. You need to return again 
to what God has said over this. And so when it comes to next level generosity, the next fill-in, next level generosity, I believe, is a comprehensive approach to stewardship. And so one of our members might come up and say, you know, actually when it comes to this card, I like what I'm doing financially. In fact, I'm even already stretching. But when I prayerfully think about my time and my talent, maybe that's what God is inviting me to. Maybe God is inviting me to think of that area as I make my commitment to the Lord. Because that's just as valid. This is a fresh surrender. It's coming to our God saying, you can have whatever you want because you're the king. But first, let's talk about an obstacle. So part of the reason Paul is writing is there is an obstacle in the way. And the Macedonian Christians, they had a good heart and they started big, but they need to finish the work. The last verses we heard, now, now finish the work that you started. Continue on. And can you relate to that? Have you ever been in a season, well, I, I, I gave, but it's someone else's turn to give. I served, but it's someone else's turn to serve. I, I used my talent, but, but really someone else can fill that void. And I think that God is asking of us to change our minds about that to repent about that ideology and to think about persevering in service to the Lord. Being a person who's kind of unstoppable, compelled by the Spirit, no one's going to stop me from offering to the King the best of all I got. Because we know the love of Jesus. As we look to Jesus, there is this word that brings the whole gospel together. When Jesus was on the cross, he spoke a Greek word that has uh, a meaning in, in three English words, tetelestai. Now, some of you know what that means. What does that mean? It means it's finished. It's finished. It wasn't finished at age 16. It wasn't finished at age 25. Do you know what it was finished? When we'll say it's finished. When Jesus died. When Jesus shed his last drop of blood and gave his last breath for us, he said, and now I'm done. Now I'm done showing him love. Another meaning for this? Paid in full. How appropriate. So what if we say it's not finished yet? What if we realize the same moment that Jesus said it is finished is our moment too? It's only finished when I have no more breath in my lungs to give, no more thing that I could spend in service to the king. It's not finished yet. And if we live our lives this way, if we live like Mary and give extravagantly to the Lord, what could happen? Do you know the tagline on Mary's story? So Jesus not only praised her for the gift, but this is what he said. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus says, you have just found a way for legacy. And Mary didn't even care. It's about you, Jesus. 
But Jesus says, no, no, no. When you call me worthy, when you consider me appropriate, I want you to know that heaven rejoices. And it's going to mean something. The same is true in our lifetime. When we maximize our moments for the glory of God, there are going to be people who look at the ministry of amazing love and say, man, I'm so glad that church existed. I'm so glad that I got to know Jesus in that place. And it will always be about the gospel. It's always about Jesus Christ. But they will remember the community of saints who gathered and said, it is good that we reach the lost. It is good that we say, we're not finished yet. In fact, I'm not finished till I die. Wherever you find me by the grace of God, I'm going to keep going with all that I have, with every breath in my lung. I'm going to be like D.L. Moody who said, the world is yet to see a man fully devoted to the Lord, but I hope to be that man. I hope to be that woman. I hope you are. What else are we going to do? This is a worthy cause because we have found the only one worthy of all our praise. May you have joy in bringing your best to the Lord. And let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You emptied yourself so that we could be filled. It is only by the power of the Spirit that we can empty ourselves in order to fill others up. You need nothing from us. We know that. But we want to tell the world you're worthy. We want many other people to know the gospel through this ministry. And so bless our efforts. Bless this next level campaign. Let it flow out of a heart of love. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this time, one of the things we love to do is now confess our faith and just tell the world what we believe. If you're comfortable, uh, if you consider yourself a Christian, feel free to join with us in the Apostles' Creed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. That was the Lord's Prayer, which is awesome. Um, and I'm glad that we prayed it together. Um, let's also speak our creed, our confession of faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.